Hello and welcome everyone to the first episode of Academics Write, a podcast about academic writing and publishing for dissertation writers and early career researchers in humanities and social sciences. My name is Armand Yildiz. I am a PhD candidate in social anthropology at Harvard with a secondary degree in studies of women, gender, and sexuality. So I'm a dissertation writer as well and going through similar things some of you must be going through right now. I also work as a writing consultant and an editor. You can find more information about me and what I do on academicswrite.com. Today, for our first episode, we have a very special guest. You may know him from wonderful books such as Getting It Published, From Dissertation to Book, and most recently, On Revision, that came out last year from the University of Chicago Press. So without further ado, welcome to Academics Write, William Germano. <clears throat> Thanks so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Oh, it's my pleasure. Um, for those of our listeners who might not be familiar with your work, could you tell us a bit about yourself? How did you become interested in academic writing or how did William Germano become William Germano? Oh, that the last question is pretty difficult. I'll try to answer <laughs> the first one. Um, I went to graduate school. Uh, I was undergraduate as an English major at Columbia. I did a PhD at Indiana in uh, English Lit and moved back to New York and found a job in publishing. Uh, tough times. It's There are always tough times for newly minted PhDs. But I uh, began working at Columbia University Press, and I learned an enormous amount from everyone at the press there. Um, <clears throat> after about seven years of working at the press, at Columbia, I went to Routledge, and uh, I was a publishing director there for, gosh, close to 20 years. Um, and got to publish uh, a lot of people uh, as i as i tell uh, young editors and people thinking about going into editing um it's always humbling and exciting because you work with people a lot smarter than yourself um but you have different kinds of different kinds of expertise which is something i'd be happy to talk about a little bit this morning um uh in 2006 i made the transition from publishing, uh, as it were, back to or into uh, academia. I, I was an administrator. I came to Cooper Union in New York, um, which is, if you don't know it, it's a, a small private college that does not have a liberal arts degree. It's just for students in engineering, uh, art, and architecture. Um, so uh, I am deliberately a kind of outsider, but a necessary and, and welcome outsider in that program. Um, I came as Dean of Humanities and Social Sciences. I did that for 11 years and uh, took a breather and came back. And I'm, I'm just a professor now and I teach uh, first year students and I teach uh, uh, students in the years three, four, and five. Um, and I, and I, I do a lot of scribbling. Um, uh, the, the first book I did on, on getting published was kind of a attempt to bring together from a insider's practical perspective uh, a description of what goes on in publishing houses in, in scholarly publishing houses but I hope written with enough uh, silly humor and sympathy for what scholars go through because that was me as well as the subject of the book um, and then Several years later, I wanted to look more deeply at revising dissertations. 
and wrote um, uh, from dissertation to book, which people have been very kind about. And, and I can still go back and look at and and uh, it, it's an odd thing to look at your own work and say, gee, I, had, I forgot about that. Um, but I also think it's a good thing. Um, and it's been translated into a bunch of languages, including Armand Turkish. I, I looking at my, my shelf this morning. Um, and then there's this book, <laughs> the book on revision, which in a, in a strange kind of way is the one that's taken the longest to write. Um, I began it 10 years ago and put it together and finally thought, okay, I got it. And uh, shall I tell this story now? I might as yes, well. So I, I already have the microphone. <laughs> um, I, I began with a manuscript. It was finished. I had done books before. I had done some other books as well. But I had done these two books on writing and publishing. And I thought, okay, I've got this down. And I sent it off to my very patient and wonderful editor, Alan Thomas, at the University of Chicago Press. And he sent it to three readers. And I promise you, this is like a fairy tale. The first reader reads it and says, oh, this is full of great stuff. Uh, Germano knows his stuff about this. Uh, yeah, you guys should publish it. The second reader looks at it and says, hmm, I didn't really understand everything that was that he was trying to do. But there's, I can see certain things that are, are really valuable. People uh, need more books about how to revise. Yeah, the press should go ahead. The third report was, what's, what's he doing? What is this? Why does this look this way? What does he possibly think the use of that chapter is? Why is there connection, no connection between this and that? Um, for those of you who are suffering with the experience of having multiple readers on your, of your work, uh, I hope you'll be sympathetic when I say the only report I paid attention to was the negative one. <laughs> and I felt going back to it, you know, I said, I understand what this reader is saying. I, I can, I can uh, it, it wasn't a hatchet job. It was a serious engagement with my work in, in, a, in a productive, and I can say this now, uh, pedagogical way, teaching me where the strengths and weaknesses, where the potential strengths were, where the weaknesses lay. So I just took the book and pulled it apart. And uh, I was having lunch with a friend who's in another field. He's a political scientist and talked to him about it. And he said, you know, everything you need to know about the subject is in your head. You should start from the beginning. And I, I had a little weep internally and thought, all right, that's what I'll do. So I, uh, I rewrote it. And some pieces are, some bits of it uh, are still there from that earlier version, but only the good pieces, I hope. But I really rewrote the whole thing. And I, that took two years. And then we had a manuscript and sent it to Alan Thomas. And the press was happy with it. And it got published. And I, I'm... I'm very happy with Unrevision. Um, I can still go back and look at it. Uh, it's been out since November and say, yeah, I, I, can, I, I, can, I can back up these points. I really believe in them. And I can teach this material, um, which is what I've been doing a bit of at uh, some other institutions. Um, so that, that's the very long version of the short story of, of what <laughs> kinds of things I've been doing. Um. And I mean, it's a, it's kind of a dream journey for a lot of us who are also uh, thinking about going into editing. Can, can, can I just can I just jump on that because I don't want to forget it. And that is, <laughs> I have had a number of uh, a number of friends uh, who friends and colleagues uh, who are um, 
super smart and super interesting um, who have begun as editorial assistants. Uh, I've been around the block enough to have had editorial assistants who have gone on to um, uh, leave uh, an editorial assistant job to go to graduate school, to earn their PhDs, to have academic appointments, to be promoted to full, to I mean, to, to be awarded tenure, to be promoted to full. Um, I've had other uh, friends who have come to, uh, to have finished their PhDs, have lots of skills, have had, have struggled or decided that um, the pursuit of an academic appointment uh, may not be the only option they have. And they now have these fantastic careers as uh, senior editors at major university presses. Um, and so I, as well as other scholarly houses, but the university press, um, the, the university press uh, um, universe is perhaps the largest set of opportunities. I, I just want to put a, put a plug in for uh, not feeling that you're overeducated to work as an editorial assistant or, or, or as an assistant editor at a university press. You can learn an incredible amount and you may find out that you just, you may discover that you have found a really, really rewarding way of engaging with ideas uh, that you might not otherwise have had an opportunity to explore. Thank you so much for that encouragement as well. Uh, you also mentioned something about uh, what the skill sets editors have. What do you think those uh, skills are? Uh, oh, um, sure. Well, I, I won't try to uh, enumerate them all, but let me just, if I can, reflect a bit on what makes a good scholarly editor. Um, the first is um, a, first is both humility uh, and deep curiosity. Um, if you do your PhD work on um, some particular aspect of life in one particular village, in one particular uh, society, uh, you may produce a, an award-winning uh, dissertation that may become an award-winning book. But if you were going to be an editor working at a press, you might have very little opportunity to leverage that expertise because you're not going to publish another book that looks like that. Um, every once in a while, and, and a beginning editor will crash and burn because he or she can't look broadly enough. Um, I suppose the most important thing about being an editor, the most important quality, is to be continuously interested. And, and speaking for myself and for those who, from whom I've learned the most uh, in the world of publishing, it's to be continually interested and both humbled by how much people know, how, how well people can teach what they know through writing, uh, and also having uh, enough sense of what publishing requires so that you can help that person with her or his manuscript when you have the opportunity. Um, publishers and or editors and uh, writers uh, 
especially in the in the academic world, overlap a lot, um, and you need to disarticulate that set of skills. So, you, as an as an editor, you know the process. You know what good what good architecture looks like. You know what you you will learn if you don't immediately if you don't know what to begin with. You will one will learn what's effective on the page. That kind of expertise, it's almost meta knowledge about scholarship. And that has to be um, a, a set of skills that works in tandem with the skills of your author. They're separate skill sets. And the wise author will recognize that um, a young editor in her early or mid-20s uh, will know more about publishing after a year or two working in a publishing house than a distinguished professor who has who has published several books and has never worked in a publishing house. It's just a matter of your environment, what you can learn, and and what you're trying to develop uh, as your own professional uh, arsenal. But <clears throat> being patient, certainly. Um, I would say being nice to people, that sounds like a silly thing to say, but it's amazing. Um, most of us have had experiences of dealing with very smart people who turn out not to be very nice. And that being the case, you don't really want to work with them. Um, it's absolutely true if you're dealing, if you're in publishing, you, you want to work with someone who you feel uh, is, is genial and uh, is also tough. And that it's getting that combination because if, if I am giving my work to an editor, I want the editor to like it, but not like it so much that she or he is going to say, oh, it's all great. You know how to do this. You've done books before. That's really not helpful. In fact, the more you publish, the more you write, you probably are more in need of having someone say, I loved your last three books. And what I loved about them was this. Now, in this project, you do some different things. Can we talk about it? Um, a question I've been asking recently a lot is not, and this, this may sound odd, uh, is not what is your book about, but why did you write it? Hmm. Why did you write the book? Um, the answer is not because I'm coming up for tenure next year or... I did the dissertation and I thought it was time to turn it into a book. Um, that's a there's a perfectly legitimate real life motivations for spending the time, but it doesn't really answer the question of where you wrote it. Um, and it's a hard question, but I think it's a really good question to ask yourself. Um, why, why am I spending all this time working on this material. And the answer, you know, for most of us, the answer is because I am an early career scholar in, in 18th century music, because I am this, because I, whatever, whatever it might be. And that's fine. But I, I really want to push people much further than that. And I'll even tell you what I think the answer is. In this case, mm -hmm. I do think the answer is. Um, I think the answer is you write because you know something and you want to teach people. And I have come to the conclusion that books are meant to teach people things, not to encase what one's learned. 
what you've learned is important. That's the archive of all, everything you've studied. <clears throat> and you will have, I, I talk a little bit about this in this uh, book, you, you will have more ideas than you can put into a book. So you will be building an archive of your own ideas. You will not use every idea in a book. That would be crazy. Uh, every idea you have about something, first of all, they may not all be good ideas. In any case, you'll have lots of ideas. Think of it as uh, preparatory sketches. Uh, you're an artist, you're, you've been asked to do a mural, you're going to have dozens, scores, hundreds, thousands. I'm not, I'm not an artist, I can't, I can't give you a number of preparatory sketches. That's kind of a, that, that's a visual and imaginative archive out of which you will draw things to produce the mural. And writing, I think, and conceptualizing writing uh, is a bit like that as well. Um, if you aim to teach your reader something, and not in a, and, and I don't mean that you're going to scold the reader or say, dear reader, in the next five pages, I will explain how to do X or Y. But if you imagine the relationship with your reader as one in which you are sharing frequently with some sense of genuine excitement, something that you have discovered or learned or pieced together or corrected or conceptualized in a way that it's never been conceptualized before and presenting it to your reader in a way that the reader can understand it, use it, and ideally take it and do things with your lesson that you would not have thought of yourself. That's the goal, I think, of writing, of writing academic books. I, I am, I'm useless on novels and um, um, uh, poetry. I love these things, but I, I don't make any claims to try to teach people how to be poets or, no, or novelists. But um, increasingly, I find that the message that gets through most effectively is helping people see that their teachers, as soon as they commit to writing a book, uh, it's not uh, it's not a monument to their knowledge. It's not a monument to uh, the research that's been done in the past. We, we you know there's a place for that kind of that kind of project. Uh, reviews of the literature articles in professional journals are functionally there to summarize everything that's gone on to save you time and help you figure out where you want to do your further research. But when you're writing a book, you have something that you want to show. And you want to show with a purpose. And that that's what teaching is about, or at least one of the things that teaching is about. That was a very long answer. I'm so sorry. No, no, no. Uh, that was very teaching as well. Yeah, what I appreciated about the book as well is that um, it kind of emphasizes the magic of reworking things uh, as opposed to the belief that scholars are already good writers as if good writing seamlessly flows from people's fingers. But you do, you show this plasticity, so to say, to writing. And um, most of the time, I don't enjoy writing the first draft. It's I find it quite excruciating, to be honest. But reworking the text is fun, as if I'm changing the places of a puzzle and seeing how it looks like. And you refer to this in the book as architecture, I guess. Could you talk a bit about this kind of mastery orientation as opposed to being gifted? Ah, uh, 
Well, uh, it's an open secret. Please don't tell anyone that there are a lot of famous scholars who are not particularly good writers. Uh, they, they're brilliant uh, and they are competent or competent plus. Um, and I know I'm not going to name any names, um, but in each of our fields, we'll have, we'll have works that we depend upon and just wish they were more comprehensible or better organized or not so self, uh, perhaps not so indulgent. Um, there is nothing that says because someone is an outstanding figure in her or his field, they are necessarily great writers. And, and uh, it's not that I'm, I'm not scolding them or holding them to an impossible standard, but I, I think that uh, I'm, I like to say this out loud so that people don't assume that early career scholars do not assume that um, the, uh, the leading figures in the field are all de facto uh, great writers. Um, people have, what people have liked about On Revision is, uh, I think, that it is as much a philosophy of writing and a philosophy of rewriting as it is a, a book of tips. Um, people who have uh, wanted a, a shopping list of tips, 100 things to do to revise your book, will not find it here, partly because I don't think that way for myself. And I also don't want to encourage that. It's just, it's too bitty. I don't, I don't want people to think in bits. I want them to think in long lines, um, long lines of ideas, long lines of, uh, um, thinking even long lines of feeling in their work. Um, and so coming up with a structure for the book was super important for me. Um, I know that you've read it and perhaps some of your listeners will have, but I, I make a big deal of what I call the three A's, uh, uh, argument, architecture, and audience. Um, and there's a chapter on each, and those are the three central chapters of the, of the book, um, asking that as one revises one's work, one constantly tests oneself in terms of, of these three these three goals. Um, do you have something to say? Um, when I'm teaching first year students, I love teaching first year students, especially first semester college. It's kind of my favorite class because mm -hmm. students are very eager and for the most part, they don't already have the skills. If they did, they wouldn't need to be in the class. Um, and, but they're, they're open to all sorts of things. And it's a chance for me to test, to test out to test out teaching, uh, teaching strategies, which are also writing strategies. Um, I tell students, we're not going to talk about writing, not, not talking about theses or thesis statements, or even, I even avoid the word argument with them because I, at 19, I think it's, it's asking for trouble. Um, <laughs> we, we, we use claim, uh, where I teach, um, I find that it's it's it turns the it turns the volume way down, and it allows students to think about well, what am I saying? What do I have to say? Um, if you turn the volume up, 
then you're at the level of the person who is revising uh, a dissertation or is writing writing a book. You should be able to say what it's about. What what do you have to say? Uh, and again, it's not purely descriptive. It's not about the War of 1812. It's your take on something that troubles you. Um, uh, when people say, oh, I couldn't sleep last night. I was worrying about this problem in my, in my, in my project or in chapter six. Um, it, I, I have very mixed feelings. It's like, I'm sorry you had trouble sleeping, but the fact that you had trouble sleeping means you're really worrying about something there. And that's a good sign. That worrying can be a good sign. It can be uh, a kind of positive emotional labor if it's not if it doesn't get out of hand because it it's it's reinforcing that you found something. You it's a discovery. A problem, a problem is a discovery. It's as much a discovery as finding uh, a, a sheaf of papers behind a wall that turns out to be you know an archival treasure. Um, a problem is what we hope for. We hope for discovering things that can sort of organize our brains around whatever subject we're writing about. Uh, I, I push this a little further in the book uh, in trying to describe the ways in, in sorry, try to describe this in terms of concentric circles. The biggest circle is the subject, whatever the subject is going to be. Um, but there's got to be something that bothers you, something that doesn't make sense or that people have got wrong or that is incomplete or has never been thought of before, uh, a gap of some kind. That's the problem. And the problem itself, though, isn't the end of the story, because what you need to do is you need to ask a question about that problem. Why is it that we have never considered the role of gender in fill in the blank, the uh, geopolitics of this particular conflict. Um, <clears throat> and it may be a conflict about which there has been a lot written. But in a sense, and you know this as a dissertation writer, Amanda, and we have not talked about uh, what you're writing on, which is fine, because I'm not an anthropologist. I probably wouldn't understand it. But um, we all look for something like, what can I write about? Where can I find my space in this big picture? Um, it's more than just finding a space. It's, it's more than finding a crack on the wall and trying to climb up and put yourself into that little crack and say, see, I'm part of the wall. It's, it's the importance of what troubles you about whatever you're studying, because things trouble us. And I think that's I think it's it's really positive and it should be encouraging and um, a means of uh, congratulating oneself on uh, uh, one's perceptiveness and attentiveness to whatever the subject is, that something doesn't look right. Uh, I joke about the Madeline books, the Madeline books of <clears throat> children's books and um, the, uh, uh, the Miss Clavel, who is overlooking the children's books. If, if anyone, if any of your listeners remember the Madeline books and the Miss Clavel says, ah, something is not right. She knows that one of the girls is ill and um, 
it's that sense. It's that's you ha- it's almost having a sixth sense. It's not really a sixth sense. It's because you're you're trained as an anthropologist. You can look at something and say something here doesn't look right. Something here is missing. Something here hasn't been talked about, or it's been talked about in the wrong way. And that's exactly where you want to be. And you begin at that spot. And it's not only true for people working on dissertations. It's really what motivates any kind of book. You have to have something to say, unless you're going to tell the same story all over again. And I guess there are I guess there are people who are good at that and who enjoy doing it. But for me, life is too short. I don't want to be telling the same story that people have told exactly the same way all over again. And it would be really hard to persuade a publisher that that's worth it because. As much as we don't like to name this, publishing is a commercial enterprise and it will make decisions based on whether or not there is an identifiable readership and a readership that's willing to will a readership that is willing to pay money for what the publisher is producing. Um, That's a painful reality, uh, especially in a world of uh, open access, online streaming. Uh, downloads various ways in which things that are otherwise protected by copyright wind up in our feed or are shared. Um, being a publisher these days is very tricky. It's it, there are lots and lots of technical challenges, but that's uh, that's for a different conversation. <laughs> <laughs> um, and one of the things that intrigued me in the book is that you write, writing is mostly about listening. Could you tell a bit about that? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've done so much of the talking and um, you've, you've been a very patient host, but here I go on, on listening. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, I have a colleague who's a poet and uh, we talk about listening. Um, it's the most important thing about writing is looking at what's there, reading it out loud, hearing how it sounds. If you're very, very fortunate and can have someone listen to your work as you read it out loud, that would be even better. I wouldn't read somebody a 300-page book, but if you read a page or even a paragraph, and if you work with students in the classroom and have a student read out loud what she's written, just a paragraph, it's very likely that she will come to a clearer understanding of the strengths and the, the, the gaps and the opacities in her paragraph as a function of reading it out loud. It's, it's just a natural process. Um, what you want to hear is the effect or the consequence of what you put down. It looks really good to your fingers. It can look lovely on the page. But there are so many ways in which, in which we let writing congratulate us for our vocabularies and our ability to write long sentences. Uh, and uh, I believe me, I, I, I've spent most of my life trying to uh, struggle against my own worst writing habits. Um, a lot of beginning scholars will often feel that complexity has to be reflected rhetorically and uh, structurally, that 
in order to take a complex problem, you must write complexly about it. And, and that has its limitations. Um, it's shocking how powerful a short sentence can be, uh, especially if short sentences do not seem to be what people do in my field, whatever one's field is. Um, the shorter paragraph. Uh, there are lots of ways in which you can sort of perform little activities with your own writing just as a, as a, as a test. Um, an easy one is to, if you're looking at your work on screen, if you put, if you put your manuscript up or your draft up on screen and there's no paragraph break in the, in the screen you're looking at, just stop right there. There's something wrong because, um, I think, I think this is especially true, it, given that we read so much on screen. It deters the reader. It, I think it erodes the reader's confidence in your capacity to organize things appropriately. If you really need a paragraph that's two or three pages long. Um, yes, I know there are famous writers who do that, but um, as we may love those famous writers, but they're really not good writing teachers for us in, in that regard. Um, the shorter paragraph compels you to make hard decisions. The longer paragraph, and this is a very crude generalization, but the longer paragraph can be an escape for the writer who is really not sure what he or she wants to say. If I fill it, if I make the paragraph long enough, I hope I will have done what it needs to do. Um, <laughs> And simple writing things, the reverse outline, <clears throat> which is something that m most of us learned or have worked with at one, or another, one point in our lives. It's really, really useful to outline your work backwards to see what's there. Um, listening to one's work, seeing what's actually on the page, it's really, really hard. But revision depends, successful revision, good revision, depends on hearing what you've actually put down and how it's going to be heard by others. Um, sometimes that means, and I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm really a brute on excess modifiers, especially adverbs. Uh, I will sometimes say to a writer, okay, as a thought experiment, take these 10 pages and pull out all the modifiers, read everything you have. It will feel naked, but, the idea is, if you do that, to see whether you can get an increased clarity on what you actually have to say. And then if you need to put modifiers back, put some of them back. Uh, or modifiers, by which I mean not only adverbs and adjectives, but emphasizing phrases uh, or dependent, uh, dependent clause introductions to uh, declarative statements. The other thing I, I'd like to encourage people to consider uh, is the interrogative. Uh, I'm always amazed at how few manuscripts will have questions in them, literal questions with literal question marks. What makes it, you know, how did we come to think it was possible to describe other cultures? I, I'm just making this up, <laughs> but, but something of that kind uh, is arresting and at the same time um, opens up the possibility of a kind of conversation between you as the writer and your reader. Um, I always like to imagine 
that I have readers who I, I know I have readers I will never see. That's that's a given. But I'd like to imagine that some of those readers know very, very little about the subject. And there are other readers who know much more about it than I do. So that uh, I am somewhere in the mix. I'm somewhere in the mix. And I, I want to try to make the writing uh, as as uh, aware of that mix of readers as possible. Don't write only for people who have um, uh, one uh, specialty that's exactly the same specialty you're working on. If you need to do that, that's fine, but that's probably work that's going to belong in a journal and not in a book. Books are by definition uh, works that are meant for audiences slightly larger, at least slightly larger than your specialty. And in some cases, therefore, audiences that are much, much broader than your specialty. Um, Unrevision is a, is a, you know, like my other, my, my other two Chicago books, um, uh, I describe them as, as car repair manuals for people who don't have cars. I don't have a car, by the way, but um, I used to, but a long time ago. Um, <laughs> But there is something um, there. There is something about uh, uh, keeping the engine running and figuring out how to how to tune it and so forth. Um, it's a it's a unrevision is a book that's meant for a very very broad audience. Um, it's not a, it's not discipline specific. Um, and as one's writing, whatever one's writing, you want to listen to your prose to see whether what the way you've said things conform confirms your sense of who you're writing for this is a slightly different question but who is your audience you want to be able to say out loud who i'm who am i writing this book for who do i imagine would have access to this book who would find this interesting um i would suggest that people say this to one to themselves quite frequently and use that as a as a means of deciding whether what's on the page is going to work or not. Um, of the three A's, uh, audience, architecture, uh, it's an argument audience and architecture, the most important uh, is, is audience. Uh, knowing that you're writing for readers, real readers who have other things to do with their time, <laughs> other books to write of their own, perhaps, um, in any, or in any case, people with curiosity and limited patience and limited time, which is the way I think we should imagine our readers um, can make all the difference in terms of how you decide what to keep in and how you decide what to cut out. Um, this kind of brings me to the question of the dissertation. Um, uh, and it's, of course, coming from a very selfish place, but I think a lot of us are listening to advice on academic books, and then we try to work with the advice when we write the dissertation, partly because we heard advice that you should write your dissertation as a book, or um, yeah, from our friends or um, sometimes advisors, but there's also this other kind of advice that says uh, the dissertation should only be getting you the PhD and nothing more. And of course, um, turning the dissertation into a book, we can also think about it as a revision, but it's more, I mean, I imagine it as more rewriting, clarifying arguments. Um, 
how would you how would you talk to that yeah i it's a it's a really good question and people bring it up a lot um i know that there are um dissertation directors who encourage their uh, um, PhD students to write the dissertation as a book. Um, I've never directed a PhD. I don't, I'm not in a graduate program. Uh, and my own feeling is that there are, while I understand the motivation, um, I'm skeptical that a dissertation can or even should be written as a book. It feels as if it should be a way of saving a lot of time in producing a, a book-length manuscript from the dissertation. But honestly, I, I, most dissertations, um, most dissertations are not books and should not be books. Um, they will all have at least one wonderful chapter and that chapter will probably be turned into an article. Um, if there are two or three chapters that are publishable as articles and an author does that, that might be all that really needs to be done with that dissertation. Um, I, I like to think that uh, there are some dissertations that are very, very close to being books, but I, I don't know whether I don't know whether they were planned that way. I think it may have been the, the, the magic of that particular writer's skills, the timeliness of the topic. Um, some dissertations uh, just hit at a moment where nobody has, nobody has done something on the subject and suddenly the, the research is available because this dissertation writer um, um, had spent the last three years working on this material and boom, there's a new crisis in the world. And this is exactly something that we need articulated in book form, even if it's not a perfect book. Um, books that are published, first books are often published by scholarly publishers. Uh, um, sorry, I have to un unravel that sentence. Um, many of the first books published by scholarly publishers are revised dissertations. And the reason they are published is because the editor at the house uh, sees the potential of that thing, of, of that work as a, a thing of timeliness. Um, it's not simply that it is smart or well-written it will be that there is a timeliness about it. But I, I, I'm afraid I, I have a, the tougher view that if you're revising your dissertation, you've got to think of it as moving from one genre to another. Um, and, and I'm hoping that if one can embrace that as a perspective on the process, that is, is liberating in a certain way. Um, because it should give the writer uh, permission to take freedoms that she or he may not have been able to do, may, may not have been able to take in writing the dissertation. Um, it, it is weird, Armand, that so much of what we do as writers um, 
despite the amount of education we've had, despite the number of difficult material uh, books we've read and material we've worked with, we're always looking for permission. We always want someone to say, can I really, we want some, can I do this? Is it okay for me to use the first person I? Uh, is it okay for me to have uh, a, a little personal anecdote in chapter four? Can I do this? Would it be okay if I did this in, in reverse chronology? Um, uh, when one's worked on a lots and lots and lots of books, there's something really kind of touching about the neediness that we all experience, me included, uh, uh, the neediness we have uh, as scholars and as academics um, and where we look for permission. Um, uh, you know, ideally, ideally we were, were, we're able to give ourselves the permission that we need. Um, but if we need a little help with that, um, uh, the stuff I've tried to write and books I like by other people are, are meant in part to be encouragements, but not only encouragements, also kind of quietly say, <clears throat> you know, it's okay. You can do this. Try it out. There is plenty of, there's a, there's a long track record of people trying out really odd ways of producing books, framing them, crafting narratives, uh, exploding the distinctions between the formal and the informal. Um, and uh, I think one should, one should take courage and encouragement from those kinds of those kinds of experiments. In fact, I think I I would encourage people to have at least one wildly experimental but deeply influential text uh, on their shelf in their field. They can just look at it to be reminded. Yeah, so and so did that. I thought it was a crazy book, but it was amazing what effect it had in my field. I'm exaggerating only slightly, but I think it's important to have a bunch of books you can just look up at and say, yeah, that right, that thing, that thing. I, I, she did something in that book. I never have the nerve to do, but I might try to do this instead. Hmm. Um, there's plenty of room for experimentation. And by the way, I think publishers are, academic publishers are very, very open to, to ex experimentation, much more so than scholars are. Publishers are, uh, scholars are more cautious than the publishers may be. I'm hoping that's, I'm, I'm saying this in part because I want to encourage people to be experimental. But I, I do think that the editors I, I know, the publishers I know, um, are always looking for fresh, uh, fresh ways of presenting material too. And maybe speaking of that kind of creativity, um, and this is my last question, how did birds and bird watching become a part of honor vision. <laughs> I live uh, I I live not terribly far from Central Park. And I would <clears throat> take walks there or in uh another park that's closer to, to where I live. And um I'm just so bad at watching and seeing um seeing the natural the natural wildlife around me uh i love hearing birds but man oh man i am just so bad at, at seeing them 
uh, and I was reading, I was reading Anne Lamott and was reading other writers on writing. And I thought, you know, I'm looking for a kind of, uh, uh, metaphor that's not really a metaphor because it's really, it's really quite true, uh, about my own limitations, but I also wanted it as a way of, uh, um, talking about writing that wasn't immediately about words. Um, and, and there is a kind of pleasurable, uh, connection between, the, the, the written world and the lived world uh, that I'd like people to feel that their writing is somehow, <clears throat> I think I've said this before, but there's something, uh, there's a kind of a metamorphosis uh, that language, language describes the world, but it also creates the world. Uh, uh, we, uh, that's what writers do. They make worlds. It's not just poets and novelists, of course, and playwrights. They, of course, that that's what they do. But I, I would say that you know, if you're writing a you're writing a dissertation in anthropology, you're creating a world. You might say, no, I'm studying this material. Yeah, but your words together, your words together are crafting for the sake for the for the length of 275 pages plus footnotes. You're crafting a world. Um, and, uh, I like to remind people of that because I think it's, it's, it's a precious gift. It's, uh, the, the opportunity to do that is itself a precious, is a precious gift. Uh, I wish I were a better birder. Um, uh, but I'll, I think I have to settle with, uh, um, uh, being a word watcher, if not a bird watcher. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for joining us, William Germano. And it was a pleasure having you. Thanks for making the time. And this was the first episode of uh, my podcast. So I'm very, very happy to have you as the first guest. I, I'm honored to be a first guest, Armanch. And I, I want to wish you and and your listeners um, all best luck uh, for courage in difficult times. And writing is always hard. Uh, it, it doesn't necessarily get easier, but one learns to take pleasure even in the difficulty. Uh, that's the life we've chosen, and uh, it's a good one. Thank you so much.